The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome to another episode of Francis Watch on member-supported Restoration Radio, sponsored by Novus Ordo Watch. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me, as always, is His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Anthony Chicada, Associate Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great, Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio, and Associate Professor at the Seminary. Your Excellency and Father, thank you for joining us. Thank you. For Happy to be funny. here, as usual, Stephen. One of the, I would say, I don't know if it's exactly a challenge of this edition of Francis Watch is we have had a lot of news about the sex abuse crisis, which His Excellency did speak a bit about in the seminary newsletter. If you don't get the newsletter, you can go to mhtseminary.org and click through the links to find a copy of it. But I think before starting this Francis Watch, although Francis has not commented too extensively on it. He, he chose the path of silence at one point. I thought it might make sense to have His Excellency and then Father give us some salient points to frame what is happening within the Novus Ordo sect and relate it to Francis before we get on with our regularly scheduled programming for this episode. So, Your Excellency, what would you like to share with our listeners regarding this topic? Well, first of all, the, it should be said that sins against the faith are far more serious than sins against purity. Right? And what is troubling in this is that while these sins and these predations of these Novus Ordo uh, clergy and high clergy uh, are absolutely heinous, the, uh, there is a, there is absolutely no reaction to the fact that over the past 50 years, they have totally altered the Catholic religion into something unrecognizable. I mean, that is the greatest abuse and the greatest of the predations. And also, it should be said that the reason why we have this problem is because of the Novus Ordo, because they have abandoned objectivity in for one reason, objectivity in morality. Uh, they have abandoned belief in hell. They have abandoned the need for mortification, the whole spirit, Christian spirituality of mortifying the senses and of chastity. They have just done away with those things, particularly among the clergy. Uh, and uh, they have humanized uh, uh, the Catholic religion into just a completely humanitarian religion, you know, better world sort of thing. And so as someone that has proclivities, no matter what they are, has, has no restraint. You know, the, these clergy have, have no restraints upon them, whatever their proclivities are. And you know, they, they, they see, they want, they take. It, that is the result of Vatican II. Also, the idea of, uh, I would call it a lack of due severity in punishing crime. Uh, 
The, the worst thing about these predations, which affect probably only maybe 5% of the, I'm saying only in quotation marks, the 5% of the Novus Ordo clergy, the worst aspect about it is that those who were supposedly in charge of them did nothing and actually sent them back to places, you know, they would, they would go off to psychiatrists, get a, get a clean bill of health from a psychiatrist and go off and be put into occasions where they were likely to sin again. And many of them did. And that is the more deplorable thing because there, there are always people who will break the rules in any organization. What, what you want to look at and what gives an organization credibility and honor is the fact that there is punishment for crime and that you remove those criminals from places in which they can perform their crimes. That's why we have prisons. That's why there's over a million people in prison in the United States. And that's why you can walk the streets in most cases in this country, you know, without too much fear. Uh, and that's, I mean, and of all the places in which severity should be, it should be in the church and especially with the clergy who have such a high standard to present to the world and, and buy it to preserve the honor of the church. What are your thoughts, Father Chicada? Well, um, I think in the letter that you sent to us in preparation for the program, you said that, well, this, uh, has, this particular crisis has, has sucked the o- oxygen out of the air, uh, as it were, for the, uh, discussing the rest of the problems in the church. And certainly that's the case. I mean, it's, it's absolutely uh, dominated all of the media. Uh, it got the social media uh, really going. The worst stuff uh, actually uh, emerged in the media when I happened to be on vacation, have some extra time. And, uh, you know, the expressions of outrage, uh, et cetera, and the analysis of uh, what was supposedly the, 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 the basis or the foundation of these, these different problems was, was um, gone over and over and over again. What Bishop Sanborn said at the uh, beginning, uh, of his comments here is uh, absolutely correct that it's the sins against the faith, as horrible as these things are, that uh, are far more offensive to Almighty God. Uh, because uh, people, some people at least in the Novus Ordo Church, have retained a uh, horror uh, against uh, uh, over sins against the Sixth and Ninth Commandment, uh, then you had all this this uh, expression of uh, outrage. But as I was reading the uh, reading all of these this commentary and this this uh, analysis, I was thinking. Well, I mean, far more uh, damaging was the effect of the Novus Ordo Missae and the introduction of this modernist theology that historicizes dogma uh, throughout the world after Vatican II that these people who are outraged about this, fine, but they, um, uh, they're about 50 years late in terms of uh, what the, the, the uh, heart of the problem and the concern for uh, uh, a real and a true outrage over God's glory uh, should be. So uh, uh, other things that, that uh, came up as I was reading about this that... Uh, you know, the, uh, 
diocesan bureaucracies and the bureaucracy of the U.S. Bishops' Conference, they're talking about more guidelines and more procedures. Uh, and you, we have to, have to uh, address this and, and finalize this procedure. You look at this and you say, this is crazy. What about the Ten Commandments? Right? And isn't that like a guideline and a procedure? <laughs> that's the basis that you should act on. They you want know, some more sensitivity training, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the, uh, it's, uh, it's like this, this never, never land. The bishops uh, then, in effect, having lost the faith over the past 50 years, end up uh, running a di- dioceses at least in the United States, as program managers. There are all these cotton-picking programs. If you, the, the minor seminary I went to in uh, Milwaukee, this huge place, was closed, and now it's the center for the diocesan bureaucracy. They don't have any priests anymore. They had to close half the parishes. There's a diocesan bureaucracy with programs. And the bishops, instead of doing what they're supposed to do, which is teaching the Catholic faith, and uh, enforcing the Catholic moral code where it needs to be enforced are uh, managers at the head of this bureaucracy, all these, these different programs. And what happens is once you get into that, uh, th- that, that program and that management mentality, you lose the uh, sense of what you're really supposed to do. So you become the supreme uh, bureaucrat. Right, the the um, bureaucrat who uh, runs the diocese. Then, again, as Bishop Sanborn said, they, there's this refusal to recognize that sin is the problem, that it's sin, and that it's not some sort of a social category or psychological thing with control uh, and domination of people, and it's certainly not clericalism. Uh, that all, all of that is a uh, distraction, this sort of sand that's thrown in, uh, in everyone's eyes. And uh, that is something that's done on purpose, to my way of thinking, uh, precisely because the uh, people who are running the show in the conciliar church don't have a, uh, a, a true concept of what Catholic moral standards uh, are, and they don't have an idea of absolutes. Everything is, is relative, is psychology, uh, etc. And that's what um, got them into trouble after, of course, the abandonment of the Catholic faith in the first place with these situations. So uh, the, uh, that's what I would say, you know, overall, that, you know, more guidelines, bureaucrats, the refusal to recognize sin, and then the substitution of, of fake explanations of clericalism. Yes, I said in my newsletter that the approach should be this, that if there's an accusation, the priest should be taken out of service and brought to the bishop's residence just to, you know, as a precaution. Then the bishop should determine the truth of the accusation, even to the point of, of setting up a trial where witnesses are brought in, they're cross-examined, etc., and then if, if, it, if it turns out to be true, he should be defrocked. That means stripped of his priesthood, effectively. You can't take away the priesthood itself, but you can take away the church's approval of your priesthood. And to the extent that in the traditional rite, they scrape 
the the oils off of your hands. It was a uh, you know like you you're just you know if we if we could take away the priesthood we would. In other words, if we could take that indelible mark from you, we we would. Uh, that's the symbolism of it, and all of that could be done within two weeks or a month. All of that process could be done. So it protects the the priest from a false accusation. And at the same time, justice moves ahead and there's a very severe penalty. That is, you're put out on the street and and call the police. The bishop would call the police if there was a crime committed. And the police arrive and then they take over. I mean, that's the it's so easy. And the severity of that process and the fact that you could lose your your whole ecclesiastical career and sustenance within a period of two weeks or a month would be, you know, would give you a second thought about preying upon young people. Maybe I better not do this. It's not a good idea. I may have nothing to eat. See, and and uh, if if they had done it that way, you would have seen virtually none of this. But because we live in this Vatican II age of softness and, you know, nothing's really true and it's only gray and it's half true, that, that seeps down into morality. Well, you know, you know, we don't want to be too, too harsh and whatnot. And uh, it, that, it's just a mentality. Uh, both Father Chicada and I lived in it. It's hard to describe. But when you live it, you see it, you, you smell it. You, you know, it's just there. I mean, I'm sure Father would agree. That the you know the, before Vatican II there were rules you disobey the rules you get into big trouble, and be, after Vatican II it's well you know well, and and uh, there's a lot of uh, you know sexual immorality going on among the clergy too that you don't hear about with consenting adults. There's, there's a general breakdown of sexual morality among the clergy, and it's it, there's a and that's not every single one so you shouldn't think of all of them but. You know, there's a very, it's, and there's tolerations that should not be there. And those where somebody might be known to be fooling around, let's say, and nothing is done. No, there's no denunciation. There's, uh, it's a general uh, breakdown of sexual morality among the clergy. And, and it, it is a disgusting thing to look at. And uh, it is uh, the, the effect of Vatican II. And so that's, uh, you know, it's, it's really, a, it's just a, one big effect of Vatican II, and it's not surprising to me at all, really. One of the things that I would add if you talk about the process um, is uh, the bishops had a uh, means at their disposal under the Code of Canon Law, the suspension ex informata conscientia. And you could act very quickly uh, as uh, a bishop under the old code if uh, there was uh, an issue that you had addressed. That was uh, abolished in the 83 code. So uh, 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 you, you, you could act quickly. The other thing, the other important point uh, about what you said, Bishop Sanborn, in terms of like having a trial and all, all the, the, the an investigation, by the bishop and have him, having him drop everything to do it, is that if, uh, in, if the allegation is true and you're a, a kid on the receiving end of something like this or the parent of a kid, you see justice done. Yes. 
there's yes. not going to be any lawsuits. Right. Uh, and, of course, that's not the point. But the thing is that uh, uh, to see it done is extremely uh, important. And yes. you will not get uh, someone, uh, a generation of, of uh, uh, people who lose the faith because of being victimized by this stuff. Because, yes. first of all, it will head it off at the pass. Uh, uh, and secondly, that if it did occur uh, and you were on the receiving end of it, uh, you would know that the church acted. In uh, this mess, we don't have that. No. And that's due to that general idea of, uh, I don't know what word to put on, a fuzziness, softness. You, you don't approach things in an objective manner. It's the failure or fall of objectivity, both with regard to dogma and with regard to morals. Everything is gray and mush. And, and that, that was the approach, you know, that, well, you know, Father, you know, maybe he needs to, you know, take some time off. But, you know, uh, instead of a very, very strong and public approach to crime. And, and uh, as, as I quoted in my newsletter, Napoleon uh, cut off the heads of some of them in order to encourage the others. You know, that if, if, these, if any priest who has some evil intent sees the head cut off of somebody who has done this and that he goes off to jail at the behest of the bishop, you know, the bishop himself calling the police with his own fingers, all right, uh, that, you know, that there's a, a, a just a co complete tidal wave of opprobrium that comes and, and jail and all sorts of other things, you know, it, maybe it will encourage him not to do those things. See? Well, and, and I think it's interesting, Your Excellency, you pointed out this lack of attention to the doctrinal issues, and then they, they go completely nuts on this issue, that there's a secular correspondence to this, at least in the United States, where you have uh, endless wars. The longest war in American history continues on, $21 trillion in debt. Uh, and then some uh, football player refuses to kneel and gets an endorsement from Nike and people are burning their Nike shoes in the streets. Uh, that there is a complete inversion of priorities. So as you point out, people don't care about doctrine, mass, ecumenism, uh, and most recently adultery, contraception, that can all go. But when this mm -hmm. happens, well, mm -hmm. now we're going to, we've saved all our outrage for this, but no outrage for the babies, no outrage for the sacrament of marriage, no outrage Correct. for the, the murdering of doctrine. So this inversion mm -hmm. that you, you point out in Catholicism, it corresponds in the secular world as well. Yes. I personally don't care what they think about the national anthem. They should just <laughs> play football. That's what they're paid to do. I couldn't give a hoot what they think about the national anthem. And, and if they stand on their heads for it, I couldn't care less. <laughs> Who cares about these, these dummies that run around that field? I mean, you know, probably their you know, total IQ added up together is less than 100. <laughs> yes, it's, this point, it's been pointed out to me by numerous clerics in the past that it's just a game. Yes. <laughs> it's no different from checkers or tiddlywinks, essentially. It might be slightly more exciting than those things, but it is checkers and tiddlywinks are far less brainless. And a card game is infinitely more brainful or requires a lot more intelligence than to, than a football game. All right. <laughs> That's my opinion about it. And, you know, we don't, 
we don't go to bridge tournaments and see if they stand up for the national anthem. <laughs> and, and by the way, what makes a football game so sacred that you have the national anthem? Why is that associated with a football game? All it is is a game of people running around, killing themselves on a field, getting brain damaged and damaged in other ways over a, a ball and where well, the ball goes. Why, why is that a sacred thing? Because it's the opening hymn, they, they're marching into the cathedral. It's the, the, you can judge a civilization by its most important buildings. And the most important buildings for modern Americans are their cathedrals, a.k.a. their stadiums. So you have to sing a hymn. Right. You have, you have to sing a hymn. And, and, the, and the stadium is named after a bank. And yes. you you sing you sing your opening hymn, and uh, and then you're those who are about to die salute you, and then you you commence your, your gladiatorial game. Yeah, all they need is the bread, giving out the bread, you know, the bread and games. I mean, that's the only thing missing is the bread. Well, you know, they do shoot those hot dogs out at stadiums. You know, <laughs> if, you've ever, if you've been to a baseball game. No, uh, I'll have to go just to, you know. The last time I was at a baseball game, I think it was uh, in the 1960s. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was the late 60s. It was the Mets. Maybe maybe down in Tampa, they'll invite you to throw the, out the first ball. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I'm, I'm still enjoying the anecdote of, of a young uh, a young pre-clerical Bishop Sanborn collecting baseball cards. That's still quite something for me. I did. Yeah. I was deeply interested in it when I was a child. You know, like St. Paul says, the things of a child. And I had the best collection of baseball cards that you could imagine. I mean, I had all of the classics of the Yankees and everybody, everybody I had. Big shoeboxes. And my mother threw them out. <laughs> then I well, look on the, on the internet the other day. We had American Flyer trains, electric trains. You should see the prices for these things on the internet now. And my mother threw those out. <laughs> and then there was these other trains that we had. My father had these German Maryland trains. You should see the prices for those things. The locomotives go for a thousand dollars. And she threw them out. <laughs> well, we could we could take we could take consolation, Your Excellency, that your mother laid up her treasure uh, where it actually mattered. Yes. yes. Yes, indeed. Well, you should see the things she kept. <laughs> because I went, I went through all of her things when she passed away, and you know she kept everything, but she, you know, she threw out all the good stuff. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> well, our our reflections having passed on what has, as Father Chicada noted, sucked all the oxygen out of the the Francis uh, dis- discussion, you could say, he did manage to still accomplish some things in this last quarter. Uh, I use the word "accomplish" in quotes. The first being that he attended the World Council of Churches, 70th anniversary of founding. And I'll read a couple of quotes and I'll invite His Excellency and Father to comment if, if they can stomach me making it all the way through this. It, it might be objected that to walk in this way is to operate at a loss since it does not adequately protect the interests of individual communities often closely linked to ethnic identity or split along party lines, whether conservative or progressive. To choose to belong to Jesus before beginning to Apollos or Cephas, to belong to Christ before being Jew or Greek, to belong to the Lord before identifying with right or left, to choose in the name of the gospel, our brother or our sister over ourselves in the eyes of the world, this often means operating at a loss. Let us not be afraid to operate at a loss. 
Ecumenism is a great enterprise operating at a loss. But the loss is evangelical, reflecting the words of Jesus. Those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. And further, he said, if we are here today, it is also thanks to all those who went before us, choosing the path of forgiveness and sparing no effort to respond to the Lord's will that all may be one. The World Council of Churches was born in service to the ecumenical movement, which itself originated in a powerful summons to mission. For how can Christians proclaim the gospel if they are divided among themselves? This pressing concern still guides our journey and is grounded in the Lord's prayer that all may be one so that the world may believe. Well, that that thing is so full of garbage that I don't know where to begin. Uh, First of all, the ecumenical movement is a complete flop. You know, F-L-O-P, flop. Uh, since 1964-65, when they passed the, the ecumenical decree uh, uh, on ecumenism, ecumenism, and since the World Council of Churches, which I think is 1948, uh, it's a flop. I mean, where, what union has taken place in the past 70 years among those people who belong to it? It's just a, a UN, a, a useless hot air balloon. Uh, of of people who are paid to do that uh, and nothing ever comes of it. So I mean, the, the thing is a flop. Secondly, uh, it is based on a, an absolutely false and perverse principle that you should uh, reduce Christianity to certain basic dogmas, uh, very, very fundamental dogmas, and that the rest doesn't matter. And this was condemned by the Roman Catholic Church. It was condemned by Pope Pius XI as equivalent to abandoning the religion revealed by God. That's how bad it is. So it's it's based on a, a diabolical principle. So uh, it, the you know the whole thing is stinks from beginning to end. Then that we cannot adequately proclaim the gospel. Well, what gospel? What you know? What, what fundamental? What are we going to proclaim? Everybody disagrees. What gospel? All right. So. And besides that, the Catholic Church did a really good job of proclaiming the gospel before the ecumenical movement came along. And conversely, Catholicism has blown away and has been reduced to to ashes as a result of the ecumenical movement. And are we to say that the the world is more Christian now after 70 years since since 1948? Uh, There's more Christian now? as a result of the ecumenical movement and the people are embracing more Christianity and, and they're more fervent. Is this the effect of it? Uh, I'm being sarcastic. People are walking away from Christianity in, in droves. I mean, any form of it. And finally, that is the most absurd and sick application of our Lord's words concerning losing his life and saving it. I mean, it, it is just so bad that it, it doesn't even deserve a response. That's my comment on the whole thing. Um, my, my thoughts are this, that um, this is shot through with V2's, the people of God theology. That's what's underneath it. That's how you can theoretically get away with it. This is sort of the, the, the super church heresy that we talk about of Vatican, Vatican II. And someone said Franken church, right? So... 
I, I, that's, that's your what, father took out. Only you could come up with a time <laughs> like that. Yes, that, that has your fingerprints all over it. <laughs> so, some people would say my cloven hooves all over it. <laughs> but the, uh, uh, when you look at, at the uh, uh, new ecclesiology, um, that uh, uh, Vatican II, we had all this stuff that was thrown at us in the 60s and early 70s about, oh, now it's the people of God, etc. And uh, when you look closely at that, that means anyone who's baptized uh, is part of the people of God. And uh, that uh, Catholics, uh, uh, Methodists, Presbyterians, etc., they're all part of this larger people of God. So this is um, a manifestation, as it were, of uh, that theology, this is a, that's a, it's it's uh, shot through with that. Uh, the uh, other uh, the the phrase that Bishop Sanborn mentioned: those who who save their life will lose it. Uh, those who lose their life for my uh, uh, sake uh, will save it. I mean, it's not a question. Lose your life. It's a question of lose your faith. That's what he's proposing. <laughs> Right, those who lose yes. their, their faith for my sake will save it. <laughs> yes, you know, analyze it, it. Right? Yes. Um, that that is exactly what he's proposing. That you know, okay, we're on a journey again. We're on a, this evolutionary journey, uh, journey theology, because everything is evolving, and we're we're marching along, and uh, the you know we're in the cheap uh, papal Renault. Uh, everyone is in the cheap papal Renault. And back in the trunk somewhere is something called the faith that you're supposed to adhere to. So, uh, you know, um, uh, among the loose baggage. So uh, that's, uh, that's essentially uh, what you get here. And again, to reaffirm this idea, Bishop Sandmore is a- absolutely correct that the ecumenical movement is a flop. And uh, in certain cases, you do have, you did say in the United States, have intercommunion or union of churches. But this was in the liberal Protestant churches where no one believes anything anymore anyway. Mm-hmm. So you had, a, uh, I know that there is some point there's a Lutheran merger, but I mean, yes. at this point, the Lutherans don't believe in anything. The no. your, your standard Presbyterians, uh, they uh, went the same way, the mainline Presbyterians, uh, and uh, where they accepted the uh, modernist scripture studies and uh, relativistic morality. So uh, uh, they're declining, and then you see, in fact, break off from them uh, other people who say, wait a minute, we want to be real Presbyterians. Let's get going on this this uh, predestination thing again. There's a whole movement. So what happens is the... Uh, Things actually end up fragmenting more. You see that happen with the Church, uh, Church of England, the Anglican Church, etc. So, uh, from the point of view of, of, of fact, I mean, it's uh, uh, it's a it's a total flop. And the other thing about how the church succeeded before Vatican II in uh, evangelizing, etc. One of the interesting things is in the old theology manuals, you see. Um, uh, the uh, in the apologetics section about the the notes of the church, the theologians will give you statistics about the increase of uh, Catholicism and its spread throughout the world 
because of the missionary efforts of the church before Vatican II. So the whole thing, uh, this whole World Council of Churches, um, uh, blather is all just nonsense. And the uh, conversions to Catholicism in this country were very, very high during the 50s. Uh, yes. So, I mean, the, the, the church was, was doing the right thing, and it was drawing people into the one true church. I mean, as Pius the, uh, the uh, 11th or Pius the 9th, I think it was Pius the 11th, you know, why, don't we, why don't you just come back and join the true church? Then we can all be one. Yeah. <laughs> why, why, you know? Uh, I think it was maybe uh, Cardinal Patrizzi that said that uh, in um, to the uh, Anglican movement. I forget was it was called the 19th century that the branch theory. You know that this uh, and we all the, all we want is unity. And he said, if you if you want unity, just come back. <laughs> you know, you have plenty of unity. Come back to the Church of Rome. We have tons of unity in the church. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I like to call that the uh, withered branch theory, Your Excellency. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but it's all the same idea, and it's based on modernism. That dogma means nothing. That your your dogmas are your personal views, and faith is a feeling about God. You know, and 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 that's what you're preaching is a feeling about God, discovering God in yourself. That's what that whole movement is based on, and it's it's a lot of garbage. And it's worse than that. It's it's apostasy. His Excellency quoted Pius XI for listeners who may be new to Restoration Radio or His Excellency's work on Mortalium Animos. There's a two-episode part of Popes Against the Modern Errors, which is a series that is available even at our lowest membership level at Digital Membership. So if you're interested in hearing His Excellency talk about Mortalium Animos and the Church's actual view on ecumenism, you can navigate over to our website and take a further look. The next topic that we're going to cover, you're going to see, lives essentially right next door to this World Council of Churches idea, although it's in the northern climes of Russia. And it was in regards to a meeting with the Russian Orthodox Metropolitan Hilarion. I should say this, what I'm about to read is a bit hilarious, but this was uh, in May of this year. He says, and before you, I would like to reiterate in a special way before you, my dear brother, and and he's referring to the Metropolitan here, and before all of you, that the Catholic Church will never allow an attitude of division to arise from her people. We will never allow ourselves to do this. I do not want it. In Moscow, in Russia, there is only one patriarchate, yours. We will not have another one. We must continue to study theology to clarify the points, but in the (laughs) meantime, But in the meantime, let us walk together. Let us not wait for these things to be resolved in order to walk. No. The Catholic Church, the Catholic Churches, must not get involved in internal matters of the Russian Orthodox Church, nor in political issues. This is my attitude and the attitude of the Holy See today, and those who meddle do not obey the Holy See, using the fear of the papacy against the Novus Ordo conservatives so they can't countermand him, Your Excellency. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah. along, along with this is the um, uh, what's gone on in in Ukraine, in, in Ukraine, and the sellout of uh, the Ukrainian Uniate Catholics who suffered persecution under guess who the Russians, and because of guess uh, what in Russia, the pseudo Orthodox Church, the Patriarchate of Moscow. So uh, again, it's this this. Um, idea 
that uh, you have some sort of a unity of uh, walking together. Uh, But the underlying theology of uh, the power of the Roman pontiff, the nature of the church, communion in the church, is something that is, uh, again, a side issue. It's in the back seat of the Renault. Uh, that you know we're we're walking along or we're driving to get uh, driving together and don't sweat the small stuff because it's it's only dogma and doctrine. Mm-hmm. It should be pointed out, however, I mean, not to, it's just a, a historical note is that there was never a Catholic patriarch of Moscow. Uh, the patriarchate was set up by the Russian government uh, before Peter the Great, and. Uh, as a response to the uh, fall of Constantinople, Moscow became the new Rome, the third Rome. And then Peter the Great did away with the patriarchate, and he became the head of the church in Russia and ruled the Russian church by a synod. And that synod, that means basically a, a, a sitting committee, uh, with with the czar as the head, lasted until the revolution when it was done away with by uh, Lenin or Stalin. And then in 1943, I think it was, Stalin uh, brought it back uh, because of the war and figuring that religion might do something for the war effort, and he, and he reestablished the Moscow Patriarchate. So the Catholic Church never had a patriarchate, never approved of a patriarchate in, in Moscow. So in that sense, what he's saying is true, that we don't have a patriarchate. We're not going to establish one. In that sure. sense, it is true. It's something to understand about it. Now, that's not true of the Greek patriarchs. You see, like Constantinople, the church did recognize the patriarchate of Constantinople and of Alexandria and the other apostolic sees, Constantinople was not an apostolic see, that was an exception actually. Uh, and, uh, but uh, there, there are, and the Catholic Church always maintained, despite the fact of, of the people being in schism in the East, always maintained Latin patriarchs of those places uh, as, a, as a claim that the, the, the local schismatic patriarch was not the true patriarch. So there would be a Monsignor or Bishop or somebody that would be the patriarch of Alexandria, the the true Latin, you know, patriarch of Alexandria, or uh, recognized by the Pope. So that 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 was before Vatican II. Uh, but uh, but the no, the Church, uh, although Russia was originally Catholic, uh, it passed into schism early on, like in the 1100s, 1200s, passed into schism early on. But originally, it was Catholic, and um, uh, so ever since, it's just been schismatic. So, you know, the, the Catholic Church has never had much of a presence uh, in Russia, except in the Russian Empire, Poland was the, the, the big Catholic area, and what is now Lithuania, and other sections of Russia had Catholics in them. It was a, an enormous empire, so it, it had all sorts of religions, and, and there were quite a few Catholics. And, but they were repressed by the Tsar, and that's why when the Kerensky government came in in 1917, the Catholics were elated. They were happy over the revolution because they now had freedom. They even had a Corpus Christi procession in St. Petersburg uh, that they could never do before. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, so that's it, just a little historical background on Moscow and the Russians. Um, so, uh, but this this statement that he makes is full of the same garbage that he said to the uh, uh, World Council of Churches. That this is you know dogma free Christianity, and you know walk together. What does that mean? You know, what, what sort of stupid thing does that mean? You know, what, where are we walking to? You know. Uh, and uh, that, uh, you know, we're not, essentially, we're not going to disturb uh, the, the schismatics. We're not going to try to draw them out of their schism. We just want to, uh, you know, have a side chapel of Catholicism in the, in the big, uh, you know, schismatic uh, scene. And so it's giving up the church's mission from Christ to proselytize and to, to uh, preach the gospel to all nations. And which caused many martyrdoms in the church's history. That 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 effort to draw people into the true faith, uh, including uh, uh, people who tried to convert schismatics, like Saint Stanislaus and uh, somebody else. I can't remember. Uh, so the uh, so you know this is just more ecumenism, which is you know, fundamentally flawed. That that's the most charitable thing you could say about it. It it, it is the poison of Vatican II ecumenism. The poison. All of the other ills of Vatican II come from ecumenism. When when I think of the walking together there, Your Excellency, I'm thinking of just two blind men walking into a pit together. I, this idea <laughs> of we don't have to wait for the theology to catch up. I mean, every day the Orthodox Church exists, it continues to pick up errors. Um, and I do think it's really interesting you, you went down that historical road regarding patriarch, and I, I thought it might be a good opportunity for our listeners to clarify with you that the patriarchs were, and and I hope I'm not misspeaking here, these were honorifics in relation to very ancient Christian sees. And they don't, they come with, maybe those patriarchs have uh, more titles and honorifics, but there's not any additional jurisdiction that they would have beyond what a a bishop or a metropolitan might have. Mm, Well, uh, yeah, it's basically honorific, but in the early church, the patriarch uh, had a jurisdiction beyond his province. You see, the metropolitan is the archbishop of the province, but the patriarch uh, had, uh, you know, in various cases, uh, jurisdiction beyond the things that he could approve or disapprove or rights of appeal, things like that. I mean, it wasn't the, wasn't delving into somebody's diocese, but uh, things that are, were extrinsic to the diocese were given to him, uh, you know, a, according to custom and, and uh, you know, in each age. But, uh, it, but it's mostly a, a, a title of honor. And they were given originally, there were four original patriarchates, and that was uh, Rome, of course, Alexandria, Jerusalem, and Antioch. Those were the four original patriarchates. And then as Constantinople became more and more prominent, only because of the emperor and being the capital of the empire, uh, they claimed to be patriarchs. You know, they claimed to be, you know, finally, I don't think there was ever an actual decree on the part of Rome saying you're a patriarch in Constantinople. But, you know, eventually it was accepted as, as uh, something that is. And uh, so there's references to the patriarch of Constantinople. But see, Constantinople was not an apostolic see. 
the reason why those others were patriarchates was because they were founded by apostles. And Constantinople was was just a harbor for some fishing vessels. When the it was nothing, it was Byzantium, and and you know sitting at that strait where all the vessels come through. But I mean, it it, it was not a big city. It was nothing important. It was given importance by the fact that Constantine moved the capital of the empire to to what he called Constantinople. So. Uh, it has no title for for patriarchy or patriarchate, and and so when when the when Constantinople fell to the Byzantine to the Islamics in uh, 1453, uh, Moscow took up the the idea of New Rome. You see that we're the third Rome, the first Rome being the ancient Rome, second Rome being Constantinople, third Rome being Moscow. The other um, thing to point out uh, that's interesting after your historical survey, Your Excellency, about uh, Moscow and the Patriarchate, uh, uh, etc., is that, um, you know, one should remember that uh, it, it was Moscow as a Patriarchate is a, a create, uh, creature of the Russian state, either of the Tsar or of uh, Stalin. So it claims, as it were, it's... it's, it's uh, right, only in terms of that, not in terms of anything that the uh, Catholic Church, not in terms of anything that the that the Pope himself did. Yeah, it's it's phony baloney. It's nothing. It's creation of the Russian state. It's all. Yeah. It is. Okay. So the the better thing would be would have been to say there is no patriarchate in, in Russia. <laughs> that would be the accurate <laughs> Catholic thing to say. There is no patriarchate in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> well, they say they say from the mouth of babes, but uh, maybe from also the mouth of Polish photographers. Recently, on his way to Lithuania, Francis was given a book uh, that had John Paul on the cover, and Francis said to the photographer, uh, "He was a saint," referring to JP two. I am the devil, and the photographer corrected him with laughter, saying, "No, you are both saints. You are both saints." Francis's quip appeared to acknowledge that he has his detractors, particularly among conservative Catholics who long for the more doctrinaire papacy of John Paul and Emeritus Benedict XVI. When we're referring to doctrinaire, uh, we, we know we've really, we've really sailed off the deep end. I, I think the emphasis is on the air part of it. <laughs> well, this is part of the fantasy world of the Novus Ordo Conservative, that, that uh, somehow Catholicism is continuing in these, uh, these uh, Vatican II popes, so-called popes, and they, you know, they uh, seize upon certain things, certain things that they say that are Catholic, you might say, as certain uh, documents that, that uphold Catholic doctrine in one sense, you know, but which are fairly rare. But they they absolutely will blind themselves to all of the defection from Catholicism in John, in both John Paul's and Benedict XVI. Uh, and but they again part of the the myth, the mythology of the Novus Ordo Conservative is the good old days where these great conservatives and doctrinaires. Uh, that you know protected the faith and everything was great under these people and it's Francis who is the devil. See, so you know you're talking about mythology. You know something like Apollo and 
and you know various of Jupiter and and uh, it, it's a mythology. Uh, it has nothing to do with reality. They they live in a dream world, and that dream world is the effect of their faith. I would say they probably retain the Catholic faith, producing a system whereby the the church is not defective. See? The the in our system, uh, our response to Vatican II is you know you can't have a Vatican II pope and the indefectibility of the church at the same time. Either the, if you accept them as popes, the church is defected. If you accept the indefectibility of the church, they are not popes, but they cannot be both. You can't have both at the same time. And they want both at the same time, so a mythology appears. So, so the, where you mythologize these people into being you know, Catholic popes. The... Um uh, remark that uh, Bergoglio made about uh, I am the devil. It's uh, interesting that uh, the term devil uh, occasionally appears in what he's talking about, but actually uh, more, so, uh, more so recently because he's been on a major riff uh, implicitly defending himself against the charges of the cover-up charges of uh, uh, Archbishop um, Vigano, uh, and uh, Bergoglio has been uh, using the devil imagery. The devil is the great accuser. You know the, the, that uh, uh, he always makes these accusations, these false accusations against Christ and against those who follow Christ. And the uh, important thing for the true Christian who really discerns as he's walking on this journey uh, to uh, uh, a better world is silence, silence in the face of these uh, accusations. So uh, the even though in the practical order, their new religion doesn't believe uh, in the devil and doesn't act as though the devil exists, they use it as part of their modernist mythology to defend themselves. And to uh, characterize then their enemies and justify what they're doing, and so uh, uh, you can see you can see Bergoglio uh, do this, and I suspect we'll hear we'll hear more of it because in the San Marta talks, there's an awful lot of talk uh, again about accusations and uh, about the devil, but uh, ultimately, you know, since he doesn't believe in the supernatural order. And uh, since uh, the eternity of hell doesn't exist and the bad guys are all, including Vigan, are all just going to get zapped, uh, it really doesn't matter in the end. So uh, someone, I don't know if you saw it recently as an uh, aside, it must have appeared like a day or two ago that uh, he, uh, uh, Bergoglio was carrying the staff, oh, that, yeah. and the wooden staff that looks like it has a V on top of it. And so someone in, in a meme on the internet um, uh, put the rest of Vigano's name next to the V. That that's exactly <laughs> what it stood for. So Bergoglio was... And, and a nail. So there's a nail. For yeah, and a nail. And then the, someone said that he, he uh, looked like a, uh, 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 Gandalf, the uh, magician in Lord of the Rings. And all I could think of is that he was carrying a giant pretzel. 
<laughs> As, I, I, I thought it was a divining. Looked like a sign of the new rod. church. <laughs> That's what I thought of when I saw it. Yeah, it, it's the sickest thing that you've ever seen. Uh, you, you have to be sick. It's something you might carry, you know, if you're dressed up on Halloween as some sort of a, a witch or warlock or something like that uh, to scare people. That's what it looks like, you know. And, uh, but, oh, it's so sick. I mean, ugh. It just it's just so odd to hear him talk about the the, the devil father and, and your excellency because I don't I don't think he believes in the devil. He so it, it's almost in as if he's got that that's why I'm fascinated by his use here of referring because he has to conjure up this this creature. He doesn't believe in the devil, so he has to create the story to to deal with the current media binge, you could say. The, the modernists believe in that stuff as as a type of mythology. They, it's in other words, it's a it's almost a literature. You see, so the the character of the devil. That's how they believe in it. They they don't believe in anything okay. supernatural. You have to understand that, but they do accept you know scriptural characters. See, so people would understand. Yeah, devil. You see, that's bad. No? But that's how you have to understand okay. the mind of the modernists. They don't believe anything supernatural. It's it's Nothing. all just stories. It's yes. all just stories to make maybe sort of a vague moral point that you can take any way that you want. Right. You know, it's like uh, people who who don't believe that uh, that we should get rid of plastic straws. They're like the devil. You see, they're the devil. You see, so then you understand. Oh, yeah, they're bad. You see, because the the whales might choke on the on the plastic straws, and. Yeah, the, the, the big thing, the big thing that's facing us right now is plastic straws. So, and you use plastic straws. It looks like a giant paper straw, right? <laughs> but then you would run into problems because paper comes from trees, and that's against Laudato Si'. And, and yes. uh, so, I mean, there's it's it's very difficult to know yes. which way to go. It's just not the loneliness of old people. It's the loneliness of the whales as well, I think. Yes. <laughs> we should have public confessions of people who have used plastic straws this week, you know, getting up at the Nova Sorrow. And, you know, how many plastic straws you used and, you know, how irresponsibly you threw them, uh, threw them away. Well, Francis would, as a, as, a, as a socialist, Your Excellency, he would appreciate public denunciation and public uh, confession in that way and, yes. and uh, wailing yes. and gnashing of teeth. In Palermo, he gave, or shall we say, refused to give a so-called papal benediction. These were the words that he used. Now, I would like to give you the blessing. I know that among you there are young Catholics, Christians, those of other religious traditions, and even some agnostics. Therefore, I will give the blessing to everyone, and I will ask God to bless that seed of restlessness that is in your heart. Oh yuck! Lord, Lord God, look, look at these. This gets better, Father. Look at these young people. You know each one of them. You know what they think. You know that they want to move forward to make a better world. Lord, make them seekers of good and of happiness. Make them active in their journey and in their encounter with others. Make them bold in serving. Make them humble in seeking the roots and carrying them forward to bear fruit, to have identity, to have belonging. May the Lord, the Lord God, accompany all these young people on the journey and bless everyone. Amen. I would say in the name of the Peace Corps, 
probably. <laughs> but uh, your 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 excellency and, and and father, what is what is the church's notion of if you're if you're issuing a blessing and it's a mixed crowd, it's not all Catholic. <laughs> is the idea well, I can't give a blessing because there are some no. non-Catholics in the audience. You you can bless a non-Catholic. There's there's uh, uh, for their conversion. Sure, you can. You can give a blessing to a non-Catholic. Yep, for their conversion. Sure. You know, uh, you can just you can pray for a non-Catholic for their conversion. It's, everything is conversion. If you don't convert to the faith, you're you're dead. You know, so any kind of good that you will for them is predicated upon the good of the faith. So you know, anything anything else you would wish for them is predicated on that. So that, that's the idea of, of blessing. So you know, you could bless a crowd indiscriminately. Of course, you could. Uh, and, but the idea behind Bergoglio's remarks here, obviously, is that, uh, you know, again, is the poison of ecumenism that we've been talking about. That, um, uh, you know, it's, it, it's uh, that, uh, assuming he believed in the truth, by um, uh, giving, uh, giving a blessing that would impose upon you the idea that uh, uh, somehow... Uh, the Catholic Church has the truth. But I'm not going to do that because personally, I don't believe that myself. Mm-hmm. So that's basically the message, uh, the message that's uh, uh, conveyed. You know, you're going on, on your journey in your special way and finding identity to have belonging and, and uh, to go through the fruit orchard and seek the fruits or whatever. But then uh, <laughs> ultimate, uh, ultimately, yeah, yeah. Where are they, what roots, where are they going? What's, you know, what belonging, belonging to what, identity with what, you know, it's all gobbledygook. Yeah. And, you know, the, the Monseigneur de Lastus, a French priest who was given many accolades by Pius X, wrote a book uh, in the early 20th century uh, called The Anti-Christian Conspiracy. And in it, it's a big work, it's three volumes. In it, he says, his main theme is that the goal of this conspiracy is to change Christianity, and by that he means the Catholic Church, into dogmaless humanitarianism. Dogma, so get rid of dogma and replace it with humanitarianism as the religion. And that's exactly what Vatican II has done, and, and Bergoglio the most so. In other words, that, that he has promoted this dogmaless uh, humanitarianism as Catholicism criticizing those who adhere to dogma. He's always criticizing people who adhere to dogma. And his message constantly is one of a better world, you know, peace or, you know, straws. He talked about the straws. Of, you know, this was a few days after he was accused by Vigano. You know, he talked about the problem of the plastic straws. And, and you know, that, that this is the real concern, not whether, you know, priests are abusing boys. The real concern is the plastic straws and they're being put in the oceans. And, you know, this is, this is what, why the church exists, to make a better world. See, this, and this was exposed back at the time of Pius X in a book and, and went through all sorts of proofs of it. And we're seeing it. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy, and not a supernatural prophecy, but of a you know, uh, uh, of something that this priest discovered and, and wrote about, and uh, uh, that we're seeing it before our eyes. He's incapable of saying anything supernatural. 
I mean, when was the last time that we had a sermon on on the the glories of Mary? Or you know, it's it's more like the glories of, of uh, you know uh, whatever you know of of recycling. You know, so that's what we're up. That's what we're seeing in this man is a total apostasy, complete apostasy from anything supernatural. Well, I thought we might step back from the active member of the so-called papacy to the contemplative member of the the two-man papacy. And and getting back to, uh, some people would say, the doctrinaire restorationist Benedict XVI. And a story that came to us in in, uh, November of last year, but it's continued to to brew. And it was a letter that he wrote to Cardinal Brandmuller in November of last year. And the text reads, in your recent interview with the Frankfurter Agmen Zetong, you say that uh, I created with the, con- with the construction of like the Pope Emeritus. Would you like me to pronounce that for you at a certain point? <laughs> yeah, well, I, Father Chikata's German is also much better than mine, but... Uh, oh, you have some or you must know how to pronounce German, yeah? <laughs> yes, you, you, you do, do you have ways of making me pronounce it, uh, Yes, Father? yes, this um, is... Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. Jawohl. So in this newspaper, you say that I created with the construction of the Pope Emeritus, a figure that does not exist in the entirety of church history. Of course, you know very well that popes have retired, even if very rarely. What were they afterwards, Pope Emeritus or what instead? As you know, Pius XII left instructions in case of being captured by the Nazis, that from the moment of his capture... He would no longer be Pope but a Cardinal again. Whether this simple return to the Cardinalate would have been in fact possible, we do not know. In my case, it surely would not have made sense simply to claim a return to the Cardinalate. I then would have been constantly exposed to the public in the way a Cardinal is. Indeed, even more so because in that Cardinal, one would have seen the former Pope. This could have led intentionally or unintentionally to difficult consequences, particularly in the context of the present situation. With the Papa Emeritus, I have tried to create a situation in which I am absolutely inaccessible to the media and in which it is completely clear that there is only one Pope. If you know of a better way and thus believe that you may condemn the one I have chosen, please tell me about it. I greet you in the Lord, Benedict XVI. Hmm. Well, there's all sorts of falsehood here. Uh, we do not know whether... It- Returning, uh, referring to Pius XII, the return to the cardinalate would have been in fact possible. Why don't we know that? I mean, it's very clear. If I'm captured by the Nazis, I'm a cardinal. That means you proceed without me to another election. Yeah. Why is that a mystery? We do not know. I mean, that's garbage. (laughs) Uh, You know, and then he says it would not have made sense. What if he had? First of all, he's over eighty when he when he retired. So that means he's not able to, to uh, in any way participate in an election, according to their rules. Why could he not have gone to a monastery where he would have been completely protected from the media just the way he is now? I mean, he could have gone to Einsiedeln or one of those other Benedictine monasteries and where you never saw him. And he lived his life as a cardinal and and you know went on and said nothing and where the media could not get to him but he has this idea that he would have returned to uh, you know like uh, walking around rome and you know having dinner in rome or something like that and, and people approach him and all 
I mean, it would have been so easy just to retire from life. A lot of those cardinals did that. Cardinal Taviani, uh, he retired, and he lived right in the Vatican. I saw him. I went to see him when I was a seminarian. And, you know, he didn't, uh, he made one television appearance, I think. But he, you know, he was unaccessible. He he just didn't hear about him or think about him. And if he wants to be a, a, a nothing, as he claims to be, running around in a white cassock in the backyard of the Vatican is not being nothing. <laughs> you know, retiring to a monastery where you're never seen would be to be nothing. Or he could have lived. Yeah, he's issuing new also. editions of he's issuing new editions of his books. He he's yes. still giving some kind of interviews. I mean, how inaccessible is he? No, it's, it's a, uh, a remark and a response. It doesn't really make any sense. No. You know, as you say, he could have gone. Uh, to a monastery, he doesn't have to be, um, uh, you know, waltzing around in Rome, uh, you know, the, the constantly exposed to the public the way a cardinal is. Well, yeah, well, maybe Uncle Ted. But the thing is that, you know, even, even he ended up uh, in a uh, monastery somewhere. So the yes. thing is that it's, it's, it's kind of a crazy uh, it's kind of a crazy response. And, you know, Pope Celestine resigned. Does anyone know anything about Pope Celestine after he resigned? <laughs> Have you ever heard a word yeah, about in, him? In fact, yeah. <laughs> no, nothing. Yeah, he, he went, he went, he, he tried to go back to the monastic life and there was all these uh, political intrigues. But could you imagine Saint, Pope St. Saint Celestine as a Papa Emeritus? This, yeah. I, I, think, I think he's exposing in this letter, maybe he didn't mean to, but his complete vanity with this idea. And earlier they had said, well, we, we couldn't get a, a, a cassock. That's why I had to keep the white cassock. You're telling me in Vatican City they couldn't <laughs> right. find a cassock in two weeks for you. So you had to go with the white ones, which you had in your wardrobe. Well, again, yeah, really he's exposing small. himself. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it, it is. It, it is. It is Italy. But I mean, <laughs> we, we're expected to believe this. I mean, the, the man is yeah. a prima donna. Yes, yes, he is. And uh, I always suspect that the reason why he's kept in the Vatican that way and with the white cassock on and Pope Emeritus is that he remains a quasi head of state and therefore is immune from prosecution. Ah, interesting. Mm. Interesting. I think that's the real reason. Ah. He never leaves the Vatican and he's in the white cassock and he's a Pope Emeritus. See, he's not just a cardinal. So that makes him a head of state. You made that point before, Your Excellency, and I think given the current climate, I think that makes uh, even more sense. Yes, I think that uh, lawsuits and even uh, criminal uh, accusations could lead to an extradition, uh, you know, a request on the part of the United States, especially. And, you know, with the laws in Italy, they would have to extradite him. Yeah. Well, uh, in, in continuing to apparently stay out of the spotlight of the media, Benedict wrote a new essay on the Jews. Oh, that'll uh, keep you quiet. The, Boy, that'll... Yeah, that, that's, that's certainly something that will keep you out of the spotlight. <laughs> and and the, 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 text was, the text was signed Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI. It was dated October the 26th, uh, 2017. And... He refers to phrase, he uses phrases like substitution theory and never revoked covenant. Uh, in one of the quotes in the essay, both theses that Israel has not been replaced by the church 
and that the old covenant has never been revoked are basically correct. But they are too imprecise in many ways and must be critically reflected on further. Uh, Thus, there never was as such a substitution theory. In other words, the idea that the church has taken Israel's place, the retired pope observes, pointing to pertinent encyclopedias. Rather, from the Christian point of view, Judaism has always enjoyed a special status insofar as Judaism is not one religion among many, but is placed in a special situation and therefore must be recognized as such by the church. I guess it's a special relationship, your Corinthian father. <laughs> um, likewise, the question of the never-revoked covenant between God and the Jews, a statement that goes back to JP2 and is today part of the obvious horizon of interpretation for Judaism from a Christian point of view, requires that distinctions be drawn according to Benedict XVI. Although in principle the statement is to be regarded as correct, in its details it still requires many clarifications and much deepening. In the sense, for example, that there wasn't just one covenant between God and his people, but there were many covenants. In addition, Benedict says, the expression of a covenantal revocation is not part of the theological vocabulary of the Old Testament. And similarly, the idea conveyed thereby of a contract between two equal partners does not correspond to biblical theology. The formula of the never-revoked covenant may have been helpful in a first stage of the new dialogue between Jews and Christians, but it is not adequate in the long run to express the magnitude of the reality in a way that is passably appropriate. Well, there's a lot there, Your Excellency and Father, so I don't know where you'd like to start. No, it's all about this book, right? Well, I'd like to start with the prophet Jeremiah. Behold, the days shall come, saith the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the covenant which they made void, and I had dominion over them, saith the Lord. All right. So, and then St. Paul, as well, our Lord in, uh, 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 in St. Luke says, the law and the prophets were until John meaning John the Baptist. From that time, the kingdom of God is preached and everyone useth violence toward it, towards it. And then St. Paul has many, many uh, uh, references to the, the cessation of the old law from, from the book uh, of Hebrews. So there is, uh, uh, for example, in, in saying before sacrifices and oblations, the holocausts for sin, thou wouldst not, Neither are they pleasing to thee, which are offered according to the law. Uh, and and uh, he continues, then said I, behold, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish that which followeth. And many others. I mean, it would take me a long time. I mean, what about the words of consecration, for heaven's sake? Yes, yes. Yeah, the new and eternal covenant. No, uh, the, the old law is finished. There are many texts in St. Paul saying that the old law is finished. And uh, all Catholic moral theology says that to observe the old law is a mortal sin. Yes, it's, it's, it's finished because it looks forward to the Savior. The Savior has come. So how do you have a, a covenant that looks forward to something that has already come? As Bishop Sheen said, the Jews are like uh, people on a railroad platform looking for a train that came 2,000 years ago. <laughs> yeah. So it, it sounds like you're actually like that you differ with the Pope Emeritus on this issue. <laughs> uh, slightly, slightly. Slightly. Uh, I would call what he's saying uh, 
blasphemous uh, and apathetical. I mean, you know, those are the two adjectives that I would give to him. Yeah. You know, it's apostasy and blasphemy. To, to want to revive the old law, which is to deny Christ, is to, uh, what is the difference between the old law and the new law except the divinity of Christ? What divides us from the Jews except the divinity of Christ? Christ the Messiah. What else divides us from the Jews? Because if they accept the entire old law and everything that's in the Old Testament, we agree with them in the sense that, you know, we do not repudiate the Old Testament. We cite it many times. We, we talk about it. Was in principle, the Jews accept everything in the Old Testament. So we have no argument with them over dogmas of the Old Testament. What divides us from the Jews? A single thing, and that is the messianic dignity of Christ and his divinity. So if, and that's what the Old Testament looked forward to. So how could it possibly still have value? It's like Confederate money. (laughs) What value does it have? Uh, What are they looking forward to? Uh, Except a false messiahs. Well, and I, I think, too, you're going to see by this focus on the Old Testament, they're ignoring the fact that numerous times in the New Testament, we have the Jews uh, refusing our Lord in person. I'm particularly thinking of that that thrilling moment. I, I find it to be very thrilling in Scripture where our Lord is reading uh, in the in the synagogue. It's his turn that, that, that Sabbath day. And he says, today, this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And to yes. be there at that moment but all of their ears were stopped and they wanted to kill him. Yes. Uh, and so it, it's not, it's not as if there's these old Testament Jews living somewhere uh, completely separate. We have test. We know what the Jews acted like in the new Testament and they constantly revoked, re- refused our Lord, repudiated him, sought his death, his blood be on us and our, on our children. I, I don't, I don't know what's ambiguous about that. No, there's nothing ambiguous about it. This is a manufactured doctrine of, uh, modernism, and it is to to say that the Jews do not have to convert to Christianity, that they have their own uh, relationship with God that is separate from Christ the Savior. They are exempt from having to be redeemed from the blood of Christ. Uh, that the New Testament is essentially for Gentiles and maybe Jews that you know think it's a good idea, and and uh, uh, but you know there's no uh, necessity. It gives Judaism value as a religion. So it, it, that's what it does. It means that they have a, a value, even though they, you see the, the Protestants have value because they're baptized. You see, it gives them value. And then it gives the Jews value. You see, their, their covenant has not been revoked. And then he gives this gobbledygook with that, you know, well, one is wrong and the other one's kind of wrong too, but they're both right. And, and you know, you read Ratzinger, you come out uh, just you know, totally confused. That's so typical of Ratzinger. You know, there's more to this and so forth. Well, you never find the answer with the modernist. And that's, that's purposeful in modernism. You keep guessing and, you know, there's, there's, there's more walking to do and we don't know. And, you know, and so you end up not knowing, but you just discuss. And then it doesn't, ultimately, it doesn't matter. That's the message that you get because right. you don't get a clear answer on the doctrine. Right. You, you just process, you know, you, you, you grow 
you know, Father Chikara and I went through both, you know, we, we experienced it up to our eyeballs, you know, uh, all of this junky uh, talk that these modernists give. I mean, and so this just goes, reminds me of the 1960s, makes yeah. me sick. You were accompanied by all of this before your experience. I was accompanied by all of this, yes. I mean, oh, yeah. you read it, and it's just, why am I reading this? This is just a lot of nonsense. It brings you nowhere. You don't know anything as a result of it. Well, continuing our discussion, uh, not, uh, not with uh, more Papa Emeritus, but uh, the Santo Subito post-Vatican II popes, there is an exchange that was published in La Stampa. And for those listening, we always have all of the links to the sources that we use for the stories that His Excellency Father and I discussed linked in the show notes. So we'll have this one linked as well. But there was a letter from the Trivenetto bishops, of which Cardinal Luciani was a, a member, and Cardinal Luciani being the future uh, JP1. He sent, he was part of this letter that was sent to Paul VI. And the it has not been released before this time, but it gave some interesting insight. The text reads, Considering this, these reasons, Luciani dwells on natural laws. Some say nature has established that women have ovulation every month. Yes, but nature itself suspends ovulation during pregnancy and lactation and after menopause. We must also be careful not to take nature in the narrow sense. Nature wants us to be heavier than the air, for example, but we are right to travel by air, imitating the natural principle by which birds fly. These, then, are the conclusions that the bishops of Triveneto make their own and present to the pontiff. Quote, the magisterium can certainly authentically interpret natural laws, but with great caution, and when the information at their disposal is certain. In our case, the data seem to be such that either we say it is legitimate, or at least we say it is not known, it is doubtful. If in doubt, one cannot accuse those who use the pill of sin. Uh, Your Excellency Father, do you agree with Cardinal Luciani? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd just like to point out at the beginning uh, one thing about Luciani in general, that um, you would find among conservatives at a certain point, those sort of conservatives, the sort of myth that Luciani was uh, some sort of a uh, conservative uh, who had been, um, you know, secretly assassinated, possibly by the the wicked Cardinal Vio and and uh, the rest of the the uh, uh, modernist and Masonic clique in the Vatican, but uh, it's it in fact was a myth, and uh, what is what is said in this uh, lecture uh, in this letter is something actually that. Uh, that was known that yes, Luciani, Luciani, in fact, was a modernist and a liberal. Uh, he was in favor of the whole religious uh, liberty business. Uh, he was, in fact, in favor of uh, the pill. And this letter is more uh, proof of that, obviously. And he was also into crazy stuff in his diocese as Patriarch of Venice of with uh, Pentecostals. So uh, this is more uh, evidence, as it were. Uh, against uh, against the myth, Your Excellency. Yeah, first of all, the, the first paragraph is so stupid that that I mean, the man must have been just an idiot, as if to say that somehow you're working against nature when you fly in an airplane. The reason why the airplane stays in the air is because of gravity, for one reason, and doesn't go off into space, for example, and also that the air 
is is according to natural law too. All of the the physics of avionics is natural law, natural physical law. So you're not. He's trying to make that uh, you know look. We we violate the natural law by flying in an airplane. This is the the logic that you know that's like the first premise. Therefore, we can violate the natural law by taking a pill. This is the logic. That is so stupid to say that as as a, an analogy. So completely stupid and idiotic. You'd have to have you know, just no brain, just mush under the cranium to say something like that. Uh, so that's point number one. Uh, and then to, uh, you know, if, where is this, in our case, the data seem to be such that either we say, and listen to this, either it is legitimate, or at least we say it is not known. How is it not known? I mean, even after Paul VI, how is it not known? You know, he didn't he say no pill? Didn't he say that? You know, is it, and so, oh, it's doubtful. And then a false moral principle. If in doubt, one cannot accuse those who use the pill of sin. Uh, the, you have to, uh, first of all, it's not doubtful, not doubtful at all, not in the slightest. But you cannot say, oh, I'm in doubt, therefore I can use it. That is to commit a mortal sin. You have to resolve the doubt in order to proceed morally, according to moral theology. You must resolve the doubt and say, I, you know, it's at least probable uh, that I have good reason to believe that this is something legitimate. But the first thing that you would look to is the teaching of the Catholic Church. <laughs> in order to resolve a doubt, you look to the teaching of the Catholic Church. You look to the law of God. That's the way you resolve a doubt. And, and the, 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 that doubt is so easily resolved by just, I mean, even, even the modernist Paul VI condemned the use of the pill. So, I mean, you know, what, what is, this is just, uh, it's dishonest, so dishonest. It's deeply dishonest. Uh, I, I was got a kick out of reading that last line. If in doubt, one cannot accuse those who use the pill of sin. <laughs> if you put the accent, you know, the pill of sin, that's exactly what it is, <laughs> the pill of sin. <laughs> just a little switch of accent and you got it right. Uh, and, uh, uh, but... You know, this is just another silly way uh, of appealing to people's simplicity. These people know better. They've been through moral theology. They they know the uh, Luciani. You know, was trained in a traditional seminary. You know, he knows all of this stuff. But you see, you say that to somebody. Oh, yeah, it's doubtful. So then I don't have to do it. I don't have to observe it. And uh, so it's dishonest, deeply, deeply dishonest in something sacred and something that pertains to eternal salvation. I mean, I think it's interesting, Your Excellency, we see him using the same plain, dumb tactic that Benedict XVI did, saying, well, we don't know if Pius XII would have been a cardinal. He says, well, right. we don't know about the pill. <laughs> it's not known. Right. How, do you, how yes. is it not known? <laughs> right. And we don't know if the old covenant is really suppressed or not. We don't know. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, the, the last thing that I wanted to talk about, uh, His Excellency might be able to give us some insight here because he's got a, he's got a couple Argentinian sources, but the abortion law was kept at bay that was uh, threatening to pass in Argentina, but with, with no help from Francis, the Argentinians uh, managed to keep it at bay on their own. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, and I take back what I said in my newsletter. I said shame on Argentina because I thought, sure, they were going to pass that law. So uh, glory to Argentina that despite all of the silence of, of Bergoglio, uh, it was the same thing that he did in Ireland, saying nothing to stop this evil law, they managed by their own decency to stop this law. So, you know, congratulations to Argentina on that. And, and it seems, Your Excellency, there wasn't exactly silence on the matter because Francis uh, accepted this green and white handkerchief, which was a symbol of the, the pro-abortion forces, and mm-hmm. he he didn't return he didn't return it. So you can take it as an acceptance of the gift. Yeah, actions speak louder than words. You know, he says some nasty things about abortion, but that his silence concerning Ireland, uh, where it, probably a word from him would have turned it. Uh, that silence is so damning. And, and you know, inviting pro-abortionists to, into the Vatican to give uh, speeches and giving the, didn't he, he give some woman some sort of, uh, you know, award, even though she's a pro-abortionist? Uh, actions speak louder than words. Uh, you know, his, his words are empty. And he, he's, I think he sees abortion as part of the whole humanitarian world that you know, it's it's better that these people not be born because you know they might eat too much. Uh, there might be unemployment. Uh, you know the uh, you know all sorts of things. I mean, the population control is one of the standard dogmas of the modern world, and, and I'm sure he believes in it. And there's also the the discernment business. I mean, if you can uh, discern the marriage bond uh, out of existence. Uh, why can't you discern in a particular situation that, well, this child is somehow desirable and when I sort of weigh the doubts on one side and the doubts on the other side, I'd have to say that, well, maybe I could go ahead and abort the baby uh, mm-hmm. as, uh, after this process of discernment. So it's the same mm-hmm. thing. It's, it's the um, uh, individual judgment, the private judgment and you come to your own conclusion because there are no objective principles. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and, and as, Card- as Cardinal Luciani says, Father, if in doubt, one cannot accuse those. <laughs> right, right. Oh, yeah. oh. right. So, yeah, you can't accuse anybody. <laughs> in fact, I shouldn't refer to him as Cardinal Lu- uh, yes, I, I I don't know why I'm referring to him as Cardinal Luciani. Disrespectful. I mean, he's soon to be saint to JP one at some point. So yeah, oh, yeah I should sure. refer to him by his by his proper honorific. Yes, well, he's a, uh, we he's a called blessing. you back into service. <laughs> we called you back into service to do a special edition on the death penalty, Your Excellency and Father. So, what has been going on for you since that episode? Well, uh, we have uh, uh, we we took in uh, one of the six new seminarians this year. Uh, one left uh, shortly after arriving, but we have five: two Nigerians and three Americans. And uh, oh, no, excuse me, two Americans, one Brazilian. And uh, so we actually had to expand the seminary by making a new room out of a storage room and a bathroom that was across the hall. And uh, from a janitor's closet. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're actually concerned about uh, the future of the seminary, its ability to train the number of young men that will present themselves to us. Uh, because we keep them for seven years. 
and uh, most of them will persevere, it seems. And uh, so next year, I have already four who are firmly interested. I would put them on that that level. Uh, They haven't put in applications, but they've made known their interest. And that's strong for this time of year. I mean, usually the spring is when they all come in. And uh, I don't expect to have, you know, at this point, more than one room or two rooms available, two rooms available next year. So, uh, and if, if I take only two out of say eight that apply, that that's going to be a very sad thing. I'll just have to say, look, we have no room and we can't take you. And, and we could be turning away some very, very valuable vocations in the sense of people that, that would make great priests. It's very possible. And, uh, you know, that's so you have a bit of a, vo- a vocation. You have a bit of a vocations crisis, then, Your Excellency. It seems so. It seems <laughs> so. And again, thanks and hats off to Bergoglio. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, may he live forever. <laughs> the, um, I'm being facetious. I'm being, you know, I'm being humorous there. But the 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 accidental good effect of Bergoglio is that he is waking people up. And bringing us, uh, bringing them to us, uh, because not only that they're reacting to him, but they're seeing that this as the fruit of Vatican II. That's key. In other words, this is where Vatican II has led us, and they're they're in a sort of confused manner uh, understanding that. And the the whole thing with the the uh, the predations of the priests is confirming that now too. It's just like one more column to collapse. In, in the Vatican to edifice in people's minds. So, uh, so, um, uh, so yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're going to see more in the future. So, you know, I really need to expand the seminary. Uh, so I have to uh, raise some money. You have any money, Stephen? <laughs> I will definitely send some your excellency, although it'll be a drop in the bucket for what you'll need. But I'm sure that some of our listeners may be interested in supporting the work as well. I need at least two million. Oh, wait, wait a minute. Let me check my wallet. <laughs> do they do they take American Express Platinum? <laughs> uh, but it's it's uh, you know we we uh, joke about it, but it's a, it's really a wonderful problem to have. In other words, uh, that we're uh, kind of filled up to capacity down there, and I mean that bodes very very well uh, for the future, and I think bodes well for the. Uh, uh, possibility too i think of of uh, uh, fundraising i think that that people have figured out more people have figured out things um uh, because of bergoglio and uh that there uh, uh there are people coming in from the outside who would be uh, quite inclined to help so i think that that's great um Yes, so I have to uh, design the building and then get the plans drawn up and then go out and start raising funds. But we do need a war chest. So you need a, something to move with. And, uh, yeah, so you, I even, you do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, sure that, I'm sure that Father Chicada could find a way to, to, to use $2 million himself. Uh, oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> yes. No, I, I, I we, we might have some, some use for it. Uh, our projects are a little more limited this year. We're uh, replacing an HVAC unit to the tune of, I think, about uh, uh, $15,000. And then we have 
parking, asphalt parking lots don't last forever. And so we have to do some resurfacing before the weather gets too cold. So that's about 40,000. But um, sure. uh, that would uh, have to get together. Um, uh, you know, it's a, a question all the time of, of maintenance of a building. And you only become, I think, more aware of it when you actually build something. Because, so for instance, a and Bishop Sanborn has the same problem too, that you think that, well, if you put a heating uh, an air conditioning unit in, you know, then you don't have to worry about it. But they have a life expectancy. Uh, you know, they, they, the ones that we got, that Bishop Sanborn got, had about uh, 10 years. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, now they're starting to go. So things don't get mm -hmm. cheaper. So you have, to, um, you have to replace them. The same um, thing happens to bishops and priests. Uh, yeah, hey. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's one, one of my favorite... One of my favorite sermons of all time that His Excellency gave, which was a fundraising one at St. Gertrude, where he talks about uh, having to wheel in Father Chicada in a wheelchair and that uh, he'll be going blind. And I thought, this is how you raise money for a seminary. Uh, but it was, an ex <laughs> it was an excellent sermon. But it is a reminder that we may, we may I, I was telling uh, our clergy before today's episode that they don't seem to age in, in my eyes, but um, they, they told me that the reality is quite otherwise. Yes. <laughs> that, that wheelchair is not far from reality. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so as, far as, uh, uh, as far as other activities up here, the big, um, we started the, the choir season, the musical season, uh, and uh, more choir members, uh, a project which is near and, and dear to my heart as a, as a church musician. Um, the uh, school is back, is operating. Um, the uh, big event of the fall is the 25th anniversary of Bishop Dolan's Episcopal Consecration. And we'll be celebrating that on the 30th of November, which is a Friday. And um, the... Uh, we'll have a, a solemn high mass and a reception. We're going to follow the pattern that Bishop Sanborn did for the Episcopal consecration of Bishop Selway. We're going to put up a, a site on the internet to allow people to register for that. Um, we'll have a, um, we hope, a very nice stand-up reception uh, afterwards in uh, the church hall with a string quartet, etc. So that's really the um, the big um, news of the fall. As far as Bishop Dolan's apostolate in general, as we speak now, uh, he is in the midst of a uh, South American journey. He started out by going to uh, Tijuana and um, uh, offering mass and confirming down there for Father Arnoldo uh, Villegas. Uh, a colleague who has uh, mass in both Tijuana and Mexicali. And from there, uh, Bishop Dolan flew down to uh, via uh, Chile to Mendoza, Argentina. And he had uh, to visit Father um, Ariel Damin, a traditionalist Sede Vacantis priest down there whom we uh, uh, support, who has a, a little community. The interesting development is uh, that... Um, uh, a number of Pius X priests in uh, Brazil uh, have uh, figured things out and uh, 
either left the society or the um, uh, so-called society resistance movement, Fathers Chazal and company, to come and work with us. And they were having a retreat down in, in uh, uh, Mendoza and uh, consultations with Father Demean. And now Bishop Dolan is down there uh, with them and uh, uh, speaking with them. So we should have some, some news up on the internet, maybe even some, some videos of the goings-on down there. So that's extremely encouraging. And, uh, you know, that the uh, that word gets around. And uh, Bishop Dolan has, uh, uh, you know, been fortunate in that regard and that he's been able to take care of um, um, priests in um, different parts of the world. We also... Um, uh, you know, would uh, appeal for at least a, a little support to that, to the Bishop's Fund, because um, what we do from here, uh, St. Gertrude's, uh, kind of keeps everyone going. We uh, support priests in Ukraine and in Mexico and in uh, uh, Argentina to the tune of about $6,000 a month, and they do rely on that. So keep that in mind. Um, uh, that is what's going on here. Uh, we haven't said anything about the synod, but I think that that um, uh, the the youth synod maybe we'll get more on that the next time to talk about. But Bishop Sanborn mentioned this in his newsletter that, given the abuse crisis in uh, the Vatican II uh, operation, uh, my suggestion was to have the youth synod, the bishops there. Uh, should have an official coffee of the youth synod, and that would be, of course, Millstone. If you find that in the Gospel of St. Luke, and the, the motto to promote it would be, give your bishop a millstone. <laughs> yes, I, I think that... don't know what, what we're referring to, our Lord said it would be better that a millstone be tied around your neck and that you'd be thrown into the sea rather than to scandalize one of these little ones. <laughs> so that, that's the verse. And so that's why Father Chikata, and as I said in my newsletter, you know, unrelenting, withering satire. <laughs> that, that's the... <laughs> that, that should be on his tombstone. Those to be unrelenting, <laughs> withering satire. <laughs> you know, it's just you know, it's like uh, putting a weed killer on you know the Roundup on a weed. You know, it just just withers and, and dies, and that, that's what happens. He, he has actually made so many good points in his career with satire. Uh, that that you know it, because satire is very effective if it's correct and and well done. It is extremely effective. You know, it's it's one of the best arguments is satire because if it, if you have something that is ridiculous and you make it look ridiculous through satire, it, it destroys it. <laughs> so yes, that was something I, I couldn't I, resist. I put it in the newsletter with a picture of Millstone. Well, as I as I always say that. <laughs> And in Cone, I was the class clown. <laughs> but that they were so serious that Heinrich Himmler could have been a class clown. <laughs> well, I suppose ending the episode with Father Chicada being compared to a Monsanto product was not the note that I wanted to go out on. But I do think of we. 
weed killer is appropriate. I do think that uh, Father does <laughs> yes. an excellent job of yes. Uh, yes. of dealing with these things. And <laughs> yes. as always, we thank our sponsors, Novus Ordo Watch, who make uh, both His Excellency and Father's comments on all of these issues available to a very wide audience. We're grateful for their sponsorship. And we look forward to our next episode, which will be our final Francis Watch of the year. And we thank both His Excellency and Father for putting up with uh, so many quotes of Francis to give Catholics the real perspective on, on, on these matters. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you, Stephen, and God bless everyone. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. Thank you.